ESG is intersecting with activism. You know, traditional activists kind of repurpose themselves as ESG activists. They tend to get the headlines. The E and the S are starting to creep into the narrative because they see, you know, more money to be made there. This is Governance Matters, the podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. In our possibly post-pandemic world, environmental and social issues persist in preoccupying investors. This was made plain in Canada, where almost 9 out of 10 2022 shareholder proposals had an environmental or social pitch. ENS considerations are more and more becoming drivers for shareholder activism. In fact, a whole bunch of traditional activists have repurposed themselves as ESG activists. And they're often using environmental and social concerns as rationale for board and senior management change. As for the big indexers, well, they're looking more and more sympathetic to ENS activist ideas. Basically, activists are hunting for ENS vulnerabilities. Today's guest says boards ignore this new activist brand at their peril. On this Governance Matters podcast, Laurel Hill Advisory Group's Vice President of Business Development, Bill Zawada, on the new ESG activism and what boards can do to prepare. ESG activism is really something that's becoming uh, more more prominent. So traditionally, the G in ESG has been uh, a big part of you know activism narratives. And what we're seeing now is that you know the E and the S are are starting to creep into the narrative and uh, certainly you know make good headlines. You know, I, really the, the the watershed story last year was was Exxon and you know engine number one taking a run at uh, the Exxon board, uh, only 0.01% ownership and managed to convince, you know, the big institutions, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and other institutions to support, uh, you know, three directors with strong environmental credentials. And so, you know, there have been other stories, uh, you know, this year, uh, Carl Icahn took a run at McDonald's uh, in terms of the treatment of uh treatment of animals. Um, ultimately, he wasn't successful uh, there. But, um, you know, that's that's becoming increasingly relevant to the activism narrative. So this year in Canada, uh, we saw um, Elliott Investment Management take a run at Suncor for, you know, a variety of things around, you know, financial and operational issues. Uh, but they uh, notably took exception to the company's uh, poor track record of uh, employee fatalities uh, relative to their peers. Uh, and and um, what happened was, you know, the company in the middle of that uh, situation, the company had another fatality, the CEO resigned the next day, and ultimately the two parties settled. Uh, and, you know, Elliot uh, was successful in installing, uh, I believe, two, uh, perhaps three directors on the Suncor uh, board. Uh, there was another situation in Canada at a company called Enthusiast Gaming, uh, a little bit smaller than Suncor, but the activists criticized uh, really kind of a culture of, you know, sort of a toxic workplace culture, a lot of employee turnover and that sort of thing. And, and they were successful in that regard as well. So 
that sort of, you know, those are more on the, on the S side of things, social considerations, but uh, certainly, you know, we're seeing, you know, on both sides of the border, uh, environmental and social matters creep into, to activism. And as I, as I referenced earlier, engine number one, for example, it's a brand new activist firm, but really it's, it's, it's seasoned activists that have repurposed themselves as ESG activists because they've seen that there's in fact more money to be made pursuing, you know, environmental and social laggards, uh, you know, both in terms of, you know, sectors and, and specific companies, you know, uh, another really prominent area of ESG activism is in shareholder proposals. There are traditionally, you know, a, a strong number of shareholder proposals uh, at Canadian companies, uh, and we've seen the percentage of those proposals rise, you know, over the last two years, you know, two years ago, it was 25% of all shareholder proposals concerned environmental and social matters. Last year, I think it was 62%, and this year it's 88%. I guess they resonate so much because investors really feel it affects the bottom line. It certainly is. Um, it is resonating. I think, you know, if, you know, I referenced, you know, the, the big, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street earlier, you know, uh, those firms, other large uh, institutional investors, pension funds, they're some of the leading voices on, on ESG. And certainly to the extent that they hold a position in your company and they're an index investor, they simply can't sell if they don't like what you're doing. Their really only voice is, you know, engagement and voting. And so to the extent that an activist comes forward with a narrative that addresses, you know, material ENS issues, uh, they're going to be receptive to that. You know, what I would say is in terms of the shareholder proposal specifically, um, uh, it was interesting this year to see that the actual Average approval rate for shareholder proposals dropped a little bit from 2021. I think it was about 12% last year. It dropped down to uh, 10 or 11% this year. But what's interesting about that is there were a significant number of proposals that were focused on a few, like th- really three issues and I don't think they were serious enough proposals to get, you know, the support of, of institutions. Pardon me. What were those proposals? They had to do with, um, you know, adopting French as the company's official language. They related to the, the possibility of becoming a benefit company and, and increasing employee participation in board decision making. So uh, how to characterize these, you know, they're sort of... Um, they weren't really serious proposals, you know, that, that were, were going to. Frivolous. Frivolous. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, institutions, they're, they're going to, they're going to scrutinize these proposals carefully and they're not just going to support proposals for the sake of supporting them. You know, it's, it's got to move the needle in terms of long-term shareholder value. Say on climate proposals, what's the deal there? Yeah, so, you know, we looked at say on climate pretty extensively. um, And, you know, what we found is, you know, it it, it appears that the initiative, you know, may be stalling. Um, You know, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, which who is the uh, essentially the um, 
initiative, you know, sponsor of the initiative, uh, you know, they set out a few years ago to put forward, you know, 100 sand climate proposals. Today, there have only been 56. We are seeing uh, approval levels go down year over year. And we're also seeing that most companies that hold a uh, sand climate are not holding it again, uh, or at least not committing to holding it again. This is either every year or perhaps for not for another three years. So if you take a look at the fact that, you know, last year there were 35 companies that held a management-sponsored say on climate vote. Based on analysis and research, uh, we anticipate that only about 40% of those or 14 of those 35 will hold one again, definitively hold one again in the future. So when there's, you know, that, that it makes it hard to really create a lot of sort of, uh, you know, enthusiasm for the initiative when you've got that sort of stop and start to it. But what we're seeing in Canada in particular is that, you know, there have only been two companies that have adopted uh, an annual say on climate advisory vote uh, to date. Uh, this past year, the, the banks all received say on climate uh, shareholder proposals. Uh, six of the seven put it to a shareholder vote. The proposals were all defeated, although they received about 20, on average, about 22% support, which is relatively uh, strong for a shareholder proposal. Um, but there's certainly a lot of skepticism. Uh, there's certainly a lot of pushback against say on climate as being, you know, the best way to accomplish the objective of, of holding companies, you know, accountable for their climate, uh, you know, uh, disclosures and behaviors. You know, one of the, the major uh, concerns of the banks is that climate strategy is really a part of the board's overall strategy. And if you don't like the corporate strategy, uh, you should vote, vote against the board, vote against board members. And, uh, you know, a standalone sand climate vote is not the appropriate approach to that because really it's removing the, it's transferring the onus from the board to shareholders to weigh in on on strategy. The other criticism of sand climate is that it's really hard to figure out what the vote means, right? Is it, you know, a vote against sand climate, what does that mean? Does it mean you're against the the company's overall strategy? Are you against the climate strategy? Are you against the progress? Uh, Are you against the disclosure? You know, and, and so it becomes difficult really to figure out and interpret and, and effectively act on the results of that uh, vote. Um, you know, there's other, you know, unintended consequences perhaps that have been expressed, such as most of the management sponsor proposals have received very strong shareholder support, uh, partly because the proxy advisors will support you. You know, and so our company's going to put up a sand climate really to sort of greenwash their unambitious plans. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of concerns around it. The proxy advisors are are not are not really supporters of it. They will support, you know, management sponsored sand climate, uh, but generally they are quite skeptical of the shareholder uh, of shareholder proposals. You know, so uh, I think there's a lot of headlines around it, you know, uh, but there's still a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism of it and um, it doesn't appear to be gaining any traction, certainly not in Canada. And, uh, you know, I think 
you know, companies ultimately will be best served and shareholders will be best served by engagement. You know, this is a really complex subject, with a lot of different moving parts and boards and management teams and shareholders need to uh, speak on these things. And, you know, shareholders need to express, you know, their views, their expectations, what they're looking for in terms of disclosure. And, you know, and that's a, that, that's a process good, that's going to evolve over time. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, work to be done still in terms of, you know, uh, disclosure standards. They continue to evolve and, uh, you know, the regulatory environment continues to, to, to evolve as well. So, yeah, sand climate is uh, certainly probably not going away anytime soon, but ultimately, I don't think it's, it's going to be the, the most useful mechanism to move the needle forward on, on this issue. So, to wrap up. What's your advice for corporate secretaries as we approach the coming proxy season? You know, I think that um, our advice around this is is not new. You know, I think going into every proxy season, you know, the corporate secretary needs to understand, you know, who their shareholders are, uh, understand the profiles of them, their their governance views and their policies, understand who they subscribe who they subscribe to in terms of uh, the institutional uh, ISS and Glass-Lewis, for example, and how they influence uh, the vote, you know, because ultimately uh, those are risks that to your, to your vote that you need to, uh, you need to understand and you need to be able to manage, you know, the corporate secretary is going to have a lot of different things coming at them. You know, certainly shareholder proposals being, being potentially one of them. Uh, It's important to really, get a handle on those and, and, and take them seriously, you know, because, uh, you know, certainly if it's not something that you are going to support, then shareholders may take a different view and that. That can certainly be a source of embarrassment. And so it's important to, to really carefully consider them, engage with the proponent, try to avoid them going to the proxy, but to the extent that they go to the proxy, have a very carefully, carefully thought out, uh, rebuttal to them. Uh, and certainly things like, you know, the, the election of directors, the appointment of auditors, they're, they're, the things that influence those votes are constantly evolving and changing. You know, take a look at the uh, election of auditors resolution, for example. So, you know, we're seeing greater scrutiny around the, around the election of uh, long-tenured auditors, um, you know, and by that I mean auditors generally with 12 to 15 years or more of tenure where institutional shareholders are starting to take a harder line in terms of what they will, you know, how long they will support, what what length of tenure they will support there. So we're seeing greater scrutiny around that. We've seen the average support level for the election of auditors go down this year. Um, And I think it's important for companies to carefully express in their proxy materials where they have long tenured auditors, what's the process in terms of the review of the auditor, the RFP process, uh, the partner rotation, etc., to try to address some of those uh, some of those developing concerns. And that's your Governance Matters podcast. Our thanks to Laurel Hills, Bill Zawada, and thank you for listening. Happy holidays, everyone! And special thanks to the Governance Matters podcast loyal digital assistant. Until next year. 